you have a copy of the Word of God, could you turn to Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Slowly trying to get back to some level of normality in the world, but it's not that it's not all that easy. But it was good to have the choir this morning, and even have Mrs. Pinkston play for the first time in a long time. We are keenly aware that the Lord is sovereign over all things that are going on in the world, and aware that. Each one of us are in his hands, and I keep thinking about all the things that many of the Lord's people want to do, not just here, but in many parts of the world, right across this nation, uh, the Lord's people just wanting to serve, wanting to do what it is the Lord has called them to do, and yet many things are still closed to the church of Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to keep in mind that it's still an opportunity for us to deal with all that's going on in a way that will bring glory to the Lord and to live for Him. All the uncertainty of things, the believer should be steadfast in Christ, assured that He is in control, and He is using this for the glory of His own name. And amidst all that's going on, and everything that will uh, unfold this week and perhaps even in weeks ahead, our Lord Jesus this morning calls us aside to sit at a table and to just put aside all the fears, all the concerns, all the feelings that we have enemies that hate the church, all the thoughts of the possibilities of some of the enemies of the Lord triumphing and rejoicing in their triumph. Christ says, that he has set a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He fights the battle. He gives rest to his people. He assures them of all the support they need in dark days. And he will restore our souls and cause our cup to run over in spite of all that is going on. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, that's our desire that we might know our cup running over and the blessings of the Lord that make rich and add no sorrow, and the certainty of His provision for us. And we come, as we have been doing, to Song of Solomon as we prepare our hearts for this ordinance instituted by Christ. And it has always been instructive to us, I believe, thus far, and trust it will be again this morning. Verse 1 was what we looked at last time. Let's read from verse 2 through verse 8. And let us hear the word of the Lord as it comes to us from the Song of Solomon. I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. 
For my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. I put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? My beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels were moved for him. I rose up to open to my beloved. My hands dropped with myrrh and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if ye find my beloved, that ye tell him that I am sick of love. Amen. May the Lord give the help that only His Spirit can give in His Word here this morning. Let's again bow together in prayer. Lord, shut us in. We need a word from Thee. Some of Your people are under duress through the circumstances that they face on certain days and on certain times. Physical infirmity is certainly one of those ways in which a number of your people may be feeling it. Isolation because of the circumstances may also be having their ill effect upon the soul. Many other things that may bother us, we might say in some sense naturally, and other things that the devil uses so deceitfully to upset and unsteady the people of God. May we be found again this morning running to Christ. You know the need of every heart. You know where everyone is. And I pray that there would be a word and season for everyone. So God, come and prepare us to sit at this table this morning. Feed thy sheep and thy lambs. May some, perhaps, who are yet in the broad road, be awakened. And may it please thee, Father, to mercifully extend thy kingdom. So give the preacher the help needed. And take us away from merely going through a set of notes. need a word, Lord. These people, they need a word. And thou alone can give that word. So grant the help that your spirit imparts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. At the outset of our message this morning, I just want to address the children and to make them aware, each of you boys and girls, as we've assembled here this morning and we're going to sit at the Lord's table, I want you to consider the condition of your own heart. The passage that is before us that I will be trying to explain both to you and to your mums and dads gives to us a very sad scene about really where some who profess to be believers can get themselves to. There are times when 
not only boys and girls, but mums and dads can get themselves into a place where they're not where they should be with God, that they are not going on with God, they are not living the way they ought. One of the signs of that, boys and girls, is that we begin to neglect reading our Bibles and praying. And you will know, I am sure, that as your mom and dad try to help you understand the importance of prayer and reading God's Word, as they try to instill that in you, they're doing it for good reason. They want you to know Christ. They want you to personally walk with Christ and be aware of what He promises. But the thing is, just like sometimes you may find it hard to really enjoy reading your Bible or praying, so it is for adults. We don't always do what we ought to do. And our hearts can become cold. And this morning, the passage before us is, it may be filled with language that is strange or uncertain. I trust that with God's help, I'll try to explain it for the benefit of all here, that it is a warning to us. It's a warning to boys and girls. It's a warning to moms and dads. Just how important it is to stay close to Jesus. To love His Word. To pray and give consideration to him all of the time. I've titled the message as we consider verses 2 through 8 this morning, A Warning Against Spiritual Carelessness. A Warning Against Spiritual Carelessness. And as we look at these verses, it will come as a warning. It will come as a reminder of what can occur when we neglect, when we turn aside, when we forget the things that have been given to us. I fully expect that there will be a challenge for every single one of us, (laughs) just as there already has been a challenge to the preacher in preparation of this message. But I trust the Lord will use it. If you're here this morning and you're not close with Christ, you're not walking with Him, really, if you were to, to give, if you were to describe your present spiritual condition, I want you to answer honestly if the word careless would describe where you are at this moment. Could you say that my spiritual walk right now, my position before God, how I am living, could be just maybe one of many other terms that could be used, words, adjectives given, that our spiritual walk is careless. If so, Lord has here a message for us. My intention, the Lord's intention, is to address that carelessness before you sit at His table. For you to be warmed in heart again by the reminder of His love for you and His continual affection even to us in our indifference towards Him. So let us give consideration to these verses again. A warning against spiritual carelessness. Note firstly, as we consider the bride here, as we see again this, this relationship, we have the bride and the bridegroom. And in this passage, we have her speaking, giving information concerning the present circumstances and what she experiences. I want you to see, first of all, her confession. Her confession. We read in verse 2, I sleep, but my heart waketh. I sleep, but my heart waketh. 
the first thing we see then here is that she confesses her sleepiness. She confesses her sleepiness. Now these words can only be spoken by the regenerate or what we might say the saved, those that are truly the Lord's. Not just those that attend church, but these are words that can only be spoken by those who have known real life, spiritual life. Their affections have been elevated not just to know about Christ, but to love Jesus Christ. The unsaved do not discern any difference in spiritual condition. Their life is one of death. And they don't discern anything else. That's, that's where they are. They, they, they don't discern a difference, a distinction in being awake or being asleep. They're continually asleep or dead. And they have no understanding that that is their condition. But here you see how the bride is aware. I sleep, but my heart waketh. She is able to discern a distinction. She is able to recognize what she has been doing and the fallout of that, as we shall see. You talk to some Christians, you'll be aware, and maybe you can testify to it as well. They go through years sometimes when they will speak of their life being marked by being asleep. They, 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 they were just drifting along. They thought themselves to be saved. Maybe even you could say, I believe I was saved, I am saved, I, I believe truly the Lord has done a work in my life. But, but there comes a point where they begin to look back on this period, this segment of their life, and they say, you know, really, I was asleep. There comes a point where they are quickened, where they are awakened afresh, and, and they look back on a time when it, they were still coming to church. They may even still have been reading their Bible, and may still have been offering prayer, and there may have been an element of giving themselves and investing themselves in spiritual matters, but, but something occurs. God gets a hold of their hearts, and then they look back and they say, really, I was asleep. I was not in any real intense fashion seeking the Lord, wanting His will, committing my way to Him, and wanting my life to shine for His glory. I've spoken to many Christians. I've seen many Christians come through this. And they, 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 we heard it even on Friday night. Some that could testify and say, well, at least one could testify that they were saved. They were saved from a child, but there was a period, there's, there were some years of, 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 of just a spiritual slumber. And then the Lord awakens Well, this is an indication of real life. And this is what the bride recognizes. I sleep, but my heart waketh. There's a sense in which there's, some describe this scene as, as one of a dream, or at least somewhat a dream being involved. So there's a sense of her being asleep, but, but there's a stirring within her soul, some quickening, some experience within her life that is indicating this distinction between where she is versus what she needs to be doing. This experience of slumber, spiritual sleep, is not unique. We, we have other passages. You can think of the, the disciples in, in the garden of Gethsemane. 
They were right there. The Lord drew them into that garden. The eleven were there, especially Peter and James and John were there to learn, to watch, to pray. They were there to give themselves to spiritual exercises, but we find them asleep. In the parable of the ten virgins that are awaiting the bridegroom, again we read in Matthew 25 verse 5, while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And you have this experience again, time and time again, where there's this spiritual slumber. You think of Samson again, sleeping in the lap of Delilah. There, there's a, there's, there's, it's, it's depicting something of the spiritual condition. You may want to turn to the passage in Luke chapter 9, where Luke records the experience of the three going up into the Mount of Transfiguration. And though it is recorded in three of the Gospels, only Luke gives one particular detail that is relevant for our purposes this morning in relation to this. In Luke chapter 9, you read from verse 28, It came to pass about an eight days after these things, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, now you think of this. They take, Christ takes Peter and James and John up into the mount. He is transfigured. He is glorified. It's depicting something of a coming glory in their Redeemer. It is there for their encouragement in terms of the anticipation of what is to come. And his glory is, is in the context of a, di a discussion about his death. And I can't give you details, we're not giving them, but there's a discussion around the death of Jesus Christ, his, his exodus, what he's about to do in terms of going to Calvary, laying down his life, dying for sinners, all of that, all of that is being discussed. There's something around that is being discussed while Christ is glorified and Moses and Elijah are there. And you would have thought that Peter and James and John first realized that Jesus is bringing us up here for a reason, that we are to learn something, we are to engage in this with all of our beings, and with all that's happening that they would be transfixed upon what's occurring. But you read in verse 32, Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. When they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. They missed out on something. I don't know for how long they were asleep. I can't give you details like that, but they missed out on something. There was a sleep that came into their experience. They were overwhelmed by a sense of tiredness, and they were not able to give themselves to the spiritual lesson that Christ was putting before them on that occasion. Now this, beloved, is dangerous to be asleep when we ought to be awake is dangerous. It was dangerous for the virgins in the parable. They're meant to be waiting, tiring, looking for the coming bridegroom. And yet they all slumbered and slept. And certainly, thankfully, half of them were already prepared and could respond when he finally came. The other half could, could not prepare in time. Their slumbering led to their utter ruin. It's a dangerous thing to slumber when we ought to be 
awake. And this is the context of Song of Solomon chapter 5. I sleep, I sleep, and as we will find out as we proceed, she ought not to have been asleep. And it was very costly for her to be asleep at this time. Matthew Henry, commenting on this passage, writes, Spiritual distempers, if not striven against at first, are apt to grow upon us and to get ground. She slept, that is, pious affections cooled. She neglected her duty and grew remiss in it. She indulged herself in her ease, was secure and off her watch, end quote. And he depicts a scene there of her condition, rightly so. The context is clear. She ought not to have been asleep, but she was. And this is how some believers find themselves on occasion. And I want you to honestly examine your heart, as it can be testified to by a number here this morning, I am certain that you have gone through periods of your life where you were asleep and you thought everything was fine, everything was okay. But really, really there was, there was a dearth in your affections, a dearth in your relationship. There was no real passion or spiritual energy or love for the things of God. And with an honest analysis... You have to say, maybe even this morning, I'm asleep. She confesses her sleepiness. As I say, this is very dangerous. The Lord always has things to teach us. And I find it remarkable in the two instances of the, of the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration and the Garden of Gethsemane, there were things to learn about his suffering. There was a discussion about his decease on the Mount. There's Christ wrestling over all that is ahead in the Garden. There were things to learn about the most important event in history the sufferings of the Son of God. And isn't that so illustrative of the Christian experience? We can stay awake for everything and anything. Our carnal hearts could could stay awake. I mean, think about it. (laughs) Come Tuesday, the entire nation, or at least the bulk of them, will be watching. It doesn't matter how early they got up on Tuesday morning. The vast majority of them will set aside the normal time for bed to watch what's happening, what's going on in the land. They will shift their schedules and they will have no problem. Their bodies will be given extra zeal and energy to give attention to something so trifling and temporary. It's not unimportant, don't get me wrong. But isn't it so illustrative, as I've said, that when Christ is teaching us something about Him and His finished work, all of a sudden, our energy just seems not to be there. This is the beginning of the downward spiral that many believers 
far too many believers have to say they have experienced. We call it backsliding. We confess that there's something wrong in my heart. Well, she confesses her sleepiness. I sleep. But she also confesses her nakedness. Look at verse 3. We're going to skip down a little and come back to the rest of verse 2 in a moment. But she confesses in verse 3 also her nakedness. She says, I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? She's giving the reason why she's not moving towards the door, why she's not motivated to, to go and respond to the knock of her beloved at the door. And this, this is the, the, the indifference that she has in her mind and heart. Again, it speaks loudly of her spiritual condition. I put off my coat. How shall I put it on? In other words, I'm already ready for, for settling down for the evening. And in this, it, it, depicts, it depicts something of the heart that removes itself away from that affection the believer ought to have for the essence of our salvation. What do I mean? The quote in the Bible often depicts for us our salvation in various ways. You have language such as in Isaiah, chapter 61, verse 10, when there, speaking of our salvation, is written, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. And I don't want to detail too many other texts about the fact that clothing depicts for us something spiritual in the Word of God very often. And it goes right back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, whenever Adam sins, he rebels, God deals with him and talks about the the promise of the seed and so on that should come. But, but at that point, when Adam stands there, yes, he tried to cover himself with his fig leaves, tried to hide himself before the presence of God, but that would never do. And as Adam by faith lays hold upon the promise, as Eve by faith lays hold upon what God promises to do, then God teaches them further about what he is going to do when we read in Genesis 3.21, unto Adam also and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. He clothed them. They were naked. They had nothing with which to stand before God and be accepted. Now listen, listen, this is, this is so essential. We stand before Almighty God clothed in a righteousness not our own. It is fundamental to a grasp of the gospel that we realize it's not just simply seeing that Christ paid the price for my sin. If my sins are all removed, I still stand naked before God. I'm sinless, but I'm still naked. And what we have depicted in the Word of God so often, speaking to us in language like clothing, is that we are not naked we're not naked. We are clothed. And that clothing is Christ. And so we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. We, are, we put Him on. We put Christ on by faith. And wearing Him, we approach our God. Now, what's she saying? I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? And what she's indicating here is, 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 is again, part of the neglect what happens when a Christian begins to get spiritually sleepy? 
They are not valuing the finished work of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. They're not doing that. They are no longer amazed that they're acceptable before a holy God. They're no longer amazed that their sins aren't going to condemn them. They're no longer amazed. In fact, they begin practically to live out a life that almost would reflect they don't believe at all. Now, you know that. You know it by your own experience. If truth be told, there are times setting aside perhaps your appearance here or at another place of worship on the Lord's day, you go through times where you might as well be like an unbeliever. You have taken off the clothing, the garments of salvation. You're no longer wearing Christ. You're no longer putting Him on. You're no longer going into the world rejoicing in the forgiveness of sins and all that you have in the Son of God. You're just meandering through life. In the morning you don't wake up and sing your praises to the God of heaven and put on Christ rejoicing that your sins will never damn you. You just enter into the day like any other unbeliever. You neglect the gospel. And this, in this passage we have that very thing. We have that very thing. She puts off her coat. Just, just setting it aside. So let me ask you, have you put on or, or have you put off Christ? How did you come to church this morning? Where's your heart inclining? Is it in the joy of what Christ offers to you? What Christ has done for you? Or is there a grief that has to be confessed? I am not thrilled. I am not overtaken. I am not overcome with gratitude when I think of what Jesus Christ has done for me. You come into the house of God naked. You've put off your coat. Christian, it's yours to wear. It has been given to you as the coat Jacob provided for Joseph was given to him. And Joseph never needed, he ought never to have been, he had no reason to be ever ashamed that his father had given to him a coat. His brothers, filled with unbelief, despised it. And there's nothing, nothing the world wants more and for you to put off that coat. Take off Christ. Set him aside. Don't live your Christian life so loudly. Don't put on Christ as a coat of many colors that speaks loudly of what he has done for you. Oh, it wants nothing more than to divest from you what Christ has provided for you. Is the world winning? 
is a world winning in your heart, removing from you the coat is the carnality of your own life, overcoming spiritual life, and you're putting off Christ. You've set him aside. Well, she confesses her nakedness. So confessing her sleepiness and nakedness, also we note here she confesses her self-righteousness. She confesses her self-righteousness. Look at verse 3 again. I have washed my feet, how shall I defile them? I have washed my feet, how shall I defile them? Here she makes a claim to her own preparation, her own washing of her feet. Now, what do I mean by this being a claim to self-righteousness? You remember in John chapter 13, you remember on that occasion when the Lord Jesus in such humility got before the feet of the disciples to wash them? You remember Peter? Peter was, was, was no way, no way, this is, this is wrong. The rules are all wrong here. Lord, you, you should not wash my feet. This is, this is wrong. Let it never be. And of course, the Lord Jesus teaches him, <laughs> if I don't wash your feet, <laughs> you, have, you have no part with me. In fact, just to read it plainly, in John 13, verse 8, Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. If it's not me that does the washing, you're not mine. Your preparation, what you need, needs to be entirely done by me. You have no part in it. And I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to wash you. And this, you see self-righteousness creep in, in her language. Instead of having her feet washed by the bridegroom, instead of indicating her dependence on him to make her clean, I have washed my feet. I, I've, I've prepared myself. I've done it all myself. Here I am. And you can see the two sides of the gospel, don't you? You see it, the casting off of the imputed righteousness of Christ and the taking to self the, the, the assumed power to wash away our own sins. And she's getting it all all upside down, all back to front. She's, she's all over the place. And this is where believers get to. If you do not immerse your mind, Christian, listen, if you do not immerse your mind daily in Christ, staying awake spiritually, staying aware of your need for Him, you're going to fall asleep. And when you fall asleep, you will do things you never imagined you would ever do. And you'll put off Christ, essentially. You'll, you'll act like he doesn't matter to you. And then you'll start looking for ways to argue for your own righteousness. You'll start looking for little aspects of your character and behavior that would argue the case that everything's still fine. I'm still fine. I'm still turning up at church, aren't I? And, and you'll look for all of these things, but un fundamentally, really scraping away the surface you will see that you've cast off Christ and really what you're depending upon is your own works. And you're like a lost person. This is her confession. You see it? Mark it well. Mark it well. It's amazing what Christians can resort to when they 
fall asleep. So we've seen her confession. Note secondly then his concern. His concern. In verse 2, it follows on, I sleep but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. For my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. You can see his concern first in what he says. See the language he uses? She has shut, shut the door to him. And yet here he is. Look what he's saying. My sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. Is he reprimanding her? There's certainly, as we shall see, a sense of discipline that goes on in this whole scene. But, but it is not without affection. He's not, he's not seeing her slumbering with the door shut and not responding. He's not doing that without also loving. He's not filled with a sense of indignation where he has come to the end of his tether and he is fed up and it's only wrath and judgment and condemnation to come. He speaks in terms of covenant affection and awareness of how he views her. He is reflecting that. Turn for a moment to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. There's a remarkable similarity here in a familiar portion in the letter to the Laodiceans and what we have in what we're considering this morning. So he's addressing the Laodiceans. They have, again, (laughs) let's read from verse 14, just helping with context. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou art cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. I have no time for people who don't take seriously, who are all show and no heart, no affection, no zeal. And here they are. Here they are rejecting the gospel. Here, here the very same as the bride. Here's what they say. I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing. There's their testimony. This is in the church. These are people who profess the name of Christ. But they have gotten to a point where they are missing that which was that first came to their ears and delighted their souls, that they could be saved have their sins forgiven, washed away, and be certain that they are reconciled to God. But they have drifted. They have fallen asleep. And they say, I am rich, increased with goods, and have need of nothing. I don't need that anymore. They're no longer putting on Christ. And Christ comes and says that they know not, that they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. 
I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. See the garment, you need the garment. Get back the garment. Don't put it off. That the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with thy salve, that thou mayest see. You're so blind. You're in the church. You're hearing the word of God. You still testify to belonging to this body of the Lord's people, but you're, you're lost. You're, you've gotten away. You're, you've, you've drifted from the fundamentals. Beloved, wake up this morning. If you're drifting, this is no time to trifle. If this applies with pertinence to your circumstances, you need to wake up. Because we never know, we never know when Christ, as we shall see, will draw away. He will draw away. In this case, the threat, of course, is that he will remove the candlesticks. We know that from context. But here, look what he says. As many as I love, verse 19. I'm saying what I'm saying. I'm standing here at the door because I love you. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous there, friend, repent. Or he might say, wake up and repent. Stop in this slumber, thinking that everything's fine and thinking there'll be no consequences for being spiritually asleep. Great consequences. And verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Do you note here in this passage that the knocking there to listen to is not the physical knock upon the door. It's if you hear my voice. He is knocking with his voice. He's speaking. He's speaking his word. He is calling out. He is saying, repent. Come back. Wake up. Do the first works. Get to where you once were. Make it priority. Set aside everything else. Sacrifice everything else. Stop resting. Stop sitting there. Stop thinking everything's fine. Stop imagining you have more time. Wake up. Repent. Get right with God. And you see it in our passage this morning. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh. So his concern is first seen in what he says. He speaks. He speaks to the sleepy Christian. He speaks words of affection. As he says in Revelation 3, as many as I love are here. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, 
my undefiled. In all, in all the scenes and stories of man trying to give a depiction of love, there is no love like the love of Jesus. So he's speaking to you, Christian, sleepy. You who once loved the place of prayer. You who once with such zeal longed to serve in some fashion. You who would pray, Lord, just take my life. Take my life. And yet, that's not how you're praying today. But his concern is not only seen in what he says, but also what he does. Look at verse 4. My beloved put in his hands by the hole of the door and my bowels were moved for him. Her affection is stirred. Her emotions begin to stir as he reaches in his hand. There's a hole in the door. It is locked from the inside. And there's a hole so that it may be opened from the outside. And he reaches his hand in the door with a movement to open the door. And she is moved by this. She discerns his approach. That in spite of the fact she is reluctant to move towards him, he is moving towards her. Now this activity of our Lord Jesus Christ is a depiction of the work of the Spirit. Christ, as he moves toward his people, does so by the Spirit. As he draws close to his people, he does so by his spirit. We are not aware of him physically in the body, being here in this place this morning. We can't see him with the eye. But I believe he's here. And he stands amidst the candlestick. And he speaks to his people. He ministers his word by the spirit. Remember in Acts chapter 16, when we have the conversion of Lydia, we are told there, and here you see it married together, what we have in Song of Solomon chapter 5, a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. That's Acts 16 verse 14. So the Lord opens her heart. It's like he put his hand through the hole of the locked door to unlatch it. But he did this by the Spirit. And he did it in conjunction with the word that was preached. Paul is giving the word. He is teaching the gospel. And as he is explaining, the Lord by his Spirit reaches into her heart, unhinges the lock, 
And the Word makes entryway into your life to the salvation of our soul. It's the marriage of the Word and the Spirit. And that's what you have here. You have in the Lord's concern not only what He says, the voice of my beloved that knocketh, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, their language of love and concern. It's not only what he says, however, it's what he does. And by his Spirit, he reaches in to touch the heart, to unlock the door. He makes the move. How I pray. God, hear our prayers. How I pray this morning that should this be you, the Lord will reach in and touch your stony heart. His moving towards her by the word and spirit, as you see at the end of verse 4, have an influence upon her. My bowels were moved for him. They weren't moved before. She was full of excuses. I put off my coat. I've washed my feet. I've no interest. And oh, that this morning it would be as the Lord putting his hand through the hole, reaching into the latch of the door of your heart. Just touching and you... You see, even to discern, he's making a move towards you this morning in spite of the fact that months have gone by and you you have shown no love towards him. It has a mighty influence. Look at verse 5. I rose up to open to my beloved and my hands drop with myrrh and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. She gets up and moves. And her hands, they're depicted poetically here by language of gospel truth. You've seen this already in the language of, of myrrh and how the Bible refers to it. And you see it even there in verse 1 of this chapter. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. Christ gathers up. And we have talked about myrrh before as, as, as signifying the, the perfect humanity of Christ. And if I can just suggest to you, beloved, her hands dripping with myrrh, her fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh is is language that depicts this, this longing that has arisen. She just wants to lay hold upon her beloved. She she wants to touch, she wants the smell of his perfect humanity to rub off on her again. She wants that, that's what she's yearning for. She's craving for it. So she gets up and makes it move. But that brings us thirdly to see, and I don't have much time here, but just very quickly to note the cost. The cost. There is a cost to a carelessness toward Christ. You, you can't play games spiritually. You can't. The New Testament is filled with warnings. Filled with warnings. People sometimes imagine that you see all these Language, all the language of judgment and curse upon Israel and the New Testament doesn't have any of that. Really? That's what you think? The church isn't very old in terms of its New Testament, New Covenant experience when you have two people 
who are so far away from the Lord, they think they can lie and get away with it. They think it's okay to say, we'll sell this piece of land, whatever we get to it, we'll give to the needs of the body of Christ. And then when they get whatever it is they got for it, and they think to themselves, well, <laughs> we did really well here. We got a good price. Let's keep back, back part of it for ourselves. That they were lying to God. And they thought they would get away with it. They never thought for a moment that God would in any way judge them for it. They never, never eat. I don't think it entered their mind. It may have, but it didn't stay there in any way of concern that would change what they would do. They thought that it's no big deal. It's no big deal to break the law of God. It's no big deal to lie to God. It's no big deal to make vows and not keep them. It's no big deal. And they were to find out in a way that they could never recover. They were to find out, the entire church and community was going to find out, you don't ever play games with God. So we find out in this portion that she is to suffer as a result of her delay of her spiritual slumber. Verse 6, we read, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. It's like Joseph and Mary. And all of a sudden they discover that Jesus is not with them. And they go looking for him. Where is he? He's not here. He had withdrawn himself. And he was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave no answer. There is this deflating sense And it increases more and more as she seeks to respond to what she knows he has said to her. And when she finally responds, it's too late. She seeks him. She can't find him. She calls out. He doesn't respond. You know, I think sometimes our prayers are like that. Praying. Offering prayers from a backslidden heart. And the Lord is withdrawn. But she pursues. The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. She suffers. This would never have happened. This would never have happened. Here is the affliction of losing out with God. Here's what happens when we lose out. We suffer bruises and wounds and hurts and pain. And some of it, some of it will last with us the rest of our days. Well, how she longs to be restored. 
I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I am sick of love. That is, I am overcome with love. The love that was once there has returned. And that bodes well. That bodes well. So let me ask you, where's your love? How are you doing this morning? Honestly. This morning, as much as any other morning, is a good time just to sit down before the great physician and take account of the condition of the soul and get a real check over and a thorough understanding of where we are before God. And to repent. And do the first works. It's so simple. It's not complex. The Lord doesn't lay out a whole list of things that you need to begin doing in terms of all this complex way of Gaining back his favor, it's just come as you did the first time. Acknowledge your sin. Plead for mercy. And he will, he will come again to your heart. May the Lord write his word upon us. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord's table is a time for every Christian. It's a time of confession and a time of celebration. You see the battered body of the Lord Jesus by faith. You see him suffering. You see him enduring divine judgment on your behalf. You see him bearing the wounds that your sin deserves. That when we take the cup, we celebrate the washing away of our sins. We see the answer. We see God's provision. And Christian, you need to take hold by faith upon the body and the blood. See there in Calvary's middle tree the answer for you this morning. There's There's nothing that Calvary, there's there's nothing you need that Calvary is unable to provide. What you need is found in Christ, in Jesus and Him crucified. And I would love nothing more, though I may never know it, but before God, He knows my heart, that this morning God has quickened you He has stirred in you something afresh in terms of your feelings toward your sin and your sloth. 
And there's a yearning to get back where you once were. Mums, dads, is it true of you? Young person, is it true of you? Lord, we lament our carelessness to whatever degree it may apply. We thank you this day for standing at the door and beckoning to us, calling to us, reaching thy hand in through the lock to touch our hearts. God in heaven, see our humble response to thee. We awaken, we respond. Don't back away, Lord. Don't hide thyself. We are thankful that Jesus Christ has promised to be with us here this morning and to sit at this table and officiate blessings upon the people of God. May we receive them by faith. May it do our hearts good. Hear us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If we turn again to your song sheet, we're going to sing the opening three verses of the Scottish Presbyterian Horatius Bonner. We're going to sing verses 1 through 3 at this point, verses 4 through 6 after we observe the Lord's table together. But let us stand when we hear the musicians play. 2, 3, 1 is the hymn, Hear, O my Lord, I see thee face to face. Let's sing verses 1 through 3.
may be seated.